Hey, hey, it's Laura. Welcome to another week. I have someone here today who means the world to me and has helped me so much personally. I just adore her and respect her so much. Uh, Jody White is an Austin-based therapist who is doing really extraordinary work guiding people through love addiction and codependency. The first time I heard the phrase love addiction, I definitely rolled my eyes and discounted it completely. It sounds stupid. Uh, but once I understood what it actually meant, I well, I avoided it for a couple of years, and then I got interested because I needed to. And Jody was the one who guided me through that gnarly terrain. She is super specific about the way she struggled, which is so helpful and something you don't always get in a therapist. Uh, She draws on the groundbreaking work of Pia Melody and builds on it in a way that is really comforting and clarifying. She builds on it and also hopeful. In this conversation, we talk about what it's like to be love anorexic. Yes, that is a thing. We dig into mother hunger and some of the other behaviors that prime us for love addiction and we talk about three primary symptoms, which you can find in the episode description. This is definitely one of those that you may t- need to listen to a few times. There's a lot in it, and even we struggled with kind of getting it all out there. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I hope it is helpful more than anything. Whenever I talk about this stuff, which is, by the way, going to be the topic of my third book, uh, I notice people lean in because it's something that affects and impacts so many people. So many. Uh, So don't forget, there's a Spotify playlist that accompanies this episode, as we do for everyone. And if you haven't become a paid subscriber, we hope you do that. The support of all of you who get something out of these conversations keeps us going. It really does matter. All right. Are you ready? Here is Jody White. All right. So we'll officially start. Hi, Jody. So good to Hi, see Laura. you. <laughs> good to see you too. So I asked you to come on to talk about something that we <laughs> that has become a topic a big topic for me mm-hmm. in the past several years really since meeting you. And I thought a good way in would be to tell everyone what you do mm-hmm. and then talk about why you got interested in love addiction. Okay. So, I am a therapist. And I specialize in trauma, but I really like to always whittle that down to not just trauma, attachment trauma, not just attachment trauma, but relational childhood trauma and Mm -hmm. codependence and love addiction. And so, but really we're talking about trauma. And, you know, I went back to school at 40 years old after working in the magazine industry for 
16, 17 years, um, thinking that was what I was supposed to do, which is also a big part of my story, how I suffered through that for 16, 17 years. And um, knowing I wanted to work in the helping field and wanted to be a therapist, so I'd go back to school at 40 to be a therapist, thinking I'm going to um, specialize in substance abuse because I thought that was really important and um, not talked about enough. And this was, let me mm -hmm. talk about this stuff. Because then I always knew I probably had a little bit of a, you know, issue with my alcohol use. Let's minimize that at the time, you know. I'm just codependent and I drink a little too much, you know. Right. That was my story. So I'm going to specialize in substance abuse. And so I go through all this program and this training and I end up working um, in a trauma crisis center for my internship. Meanwhile, my life is, you know, I know there's something not quite right with my relationships. Mm -hmm. And so then as moving forward and a lot of time in my internship, actually, you know, which was about two or three years to get through that, I was what at the time, and I didn't know this, but at the time we were calling it love anorexic. So I was oh. not dating. Have you heard that term, love anorexic? No. How often okay. have I heard that? I don't like, like the you term. don't date, you don't have sex, you don't, you're like, is it celibate? Mm -hmm. Celibacy? Yeah, but not, but my story <clears throat> was that, my story was that I was just busy and I was in the process of changing my life. Um, I was doing so much work on myself. Meanwhile, I wasn't really in therapy at that time, but I was in my internship, so it kind of felt like therapy, you know, <laughs> right. like I was doing some sort of therapeutic thing for myself. So not understanding that the disastrous relationship I had when I was in grad school led me to shut off a huge part of myself mm. and protect myself. And that that wasn't the first time that had happened. I had done this sort of what people will sometimes call love anorexic. I don't love that term. I don't like it. But I had done that several times throughout my life. Really, what I was doing was protecting myself. I was just being hyper avoidant. Right. right. So you were no dating, no, no dating, no nothing, mm -mm. no nothing. Yeah. yeah. And it all made sense to me. Of course, this is just, yeah, one day I'll get back into a relationship. Everything's okay. All that dysfunction is behind me because I'm doing all this work on becoming a therapist. And mm -hmm. it's not the same as addressing your stuff. And so, you know, time goes on. I moved to Austin. I decide I'm going to date again. And so here's what happened after three years of no dating, no sex. Within two months of this new relationship, it was a disaster. Then I got out of that one, immediately jumped into another one. That was also with another uh, love avoidant. I That was also not great. Then what I jumped did, into what another did one. disaster look like? What was... Well, the, when I say disaster, I think this one... Um, in particular was, well, I had him on a pedestal of someone who probably had his shit together, <laughs> you know, right. and had done all this oh, work. And then, right, right uh, there was a lot of, a lot of um, trauma in his life. I got my codependence flared up, my love addiction kicked in, and we were completely enmeshed within three weeks of starting dating. Wow. Three weeks. Yeah. I, I looked at that one as within that very short time of dating him, I was on the floor. I went from functioning pretty well to just being on the floor. Oh, yeah. And so then 
this other person had come along, um, a musician here in Austin, and I thought, okay, he looks safe. I'm going to jump into this one and soothe myself there, which I didn't know that's what I was doing. But, you know, my ego, I start feeling better about myself. I start feeling more valuable, getting up off the floor. And he's also avoidant. And so then I go into, you know, trying to prove myself, trying to get his attention, trying to do, that didn't work. Then another musician comes along and I get into that one. And it just, this is an example of within, um, this all happened within a year, 12 months, three relationships, the spiral. And what I call it is the ramp up of love addiction, because if we don't address it early in life, it just ramps up. And you go through the relationship cycle faster and faster and faster and faster. Yes. Sometimes just to the point of like days. Oh, yes. I can imagine that if I had continued to go. The the thing is, though, that in this ramp up, (laughs) this cycling, we also fall apart faster, too. And so finally, after a year of this, I have a friend who's a therapist here. And she said, hey, I heard, I know about this therapist. Um, I think she's pretty good. Maybe, maybe talk to her. Um, we, still, love addiction wasn't mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so I go in to meet with this therapist. And she said, um, I mean, it was 15, 20 minutes of this first session. And, and mind you, I had been in therapy before. Yeah. Lots of therapy. And this particular therapist said, um, yeah, let me just tell you what's going on here you're a love addict and you're attracted to love avoidant partners. And then she proceeds to basically describe every relationship I'd ever been in. Wow. She she goes, let me guess. The guy comes on strong. You feel really good at first. You seem really connected. Like, Oh, this is great. And then as soon as you decide, yeah, okay, this is cool. I'm going to move forward. They start to pull away a little bit. And then you start to feel really insecure and you start to try to grab onto it. Meanwhile, they're moving away, they're moving away, they're moving away. And meanwhile, you're spinning out of control, right? And so, and then if you break up, they come back and then mm-hmm. it keeps on like, it goes. and so it just, it made so much sense. And even though I, I did not like the term. Yeah, I was gonna say, what did you think it? of that term? Like, were you, did you care? Or were you just kind of relieved to have something? I was so relieved. And I think the important part though, really important part of this to, to mention those, I was ready to hear it. Yeah. You were sick of it. I was tired of what I, you know, I was tired of my own bullshit. I was tired of what I was doing to myself. Why did you decide to make this a focus of your work? And like, what did you do after she told you that? Like what, what happened? Okay. Well, let's start with that. What happened after? Cause that'll lead me into why I started specializing in this. So I, I, currently broken up with someone um, and we were still talking. Yeah. <laughs> we were still hooking Love up. Love that. <laughs> well, we're talking. Oh, you were talking. He, you had know, so I'm still making dinner for him. And yeah. <laughs> right. So what was your, like, before you went in there, can you just describe what you were feeling, experiencing? Like, what was your emotional state? And were you drinking then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the drinking would also ramp up <laughs> with whatever I was dealing with with my love addiction. They went hand in hand. So I always, what I like to say is love addiction turned out to be my thing. Yep. You know, 
right? Alcohol use was just along for the ride, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I was medicating with alcohol. And then when I would medicate with alcohol, I would do and say things that I regretted. And then it would lead me into shame. And then it was just this whole cycle that was attached there. But I told this therapist, you know, when we're talking about love addiction, uh, I told her my theory that I was just codependent and um, drank a little too much, (laughs) minimizing. And um, she said, yeah, well, once we work on this love addiction thing, it's going to change your relationship with alcohol. And she was right. But what I had to do, I mean, she didn't force me, but I had to take 90 days for myself. I knew I knew instinctually it was the right thing. It was 90 days away from um, who was then my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. Uh, and no contact. So it was, and a, and a conversation had to happen. I had to have that conversation, set that boundary, which was, I think, the most painful moment in yeah. my life because it felt like I was going to die. Yeah. Because that's what love addiction is about, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but it's you it's attachment Mm -hmm. and it's based, it's all due to an attachment wound. And we're looking at that person as I need you to survive. Yep. So, and it is that strong having through it myself. And I'm sure there are so many people listening going, Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. It does feel like that. And I'm not, it's not because I'm just like fucked up. Right. No, Mm -hmm. this is a real thing. And, um, you know, I always thought I would, it was just me. I'm just crazy. I'm broken or whatever it is that I yeah. believed about myself. So I did the 90 days, which was very challenging. Uh, but I did it. And I think that's also a part of recovery is you prove to yourself that you can do things that you believe you can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that 90 days, I did um, a Meadows-based intensive um, a weekend intensive, which is where you really dive into Pia Melody's model mm-hmm. uh, and the symptoms of codependence and developmental trauma. And um, that is what led me to realize here I had been working in substance abuse at a sub- even inpatient at a, a substance abuse facility. And I thought about all the women who had come to me and reported these symptoms. Mm-hmm. And we were so focused on the alcohol use. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing so many of them were dealing with this developmental trauma and love addiction. And so I just, I knew that's what the work I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And since then, have you just, do you just feel that more and more that, that it's obviously they're, they're connected, um, and it's like with chicken and egg, like what comes first? I mean, I can see for me, alcohol was definitely, I think I had two things, legitimately two things, mm-hmm. but the the attachment stuff came first. I didn't start drinking when I was three. Right. 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 Um, and found other ways to medicate that. Mm-hmm. But as, so, so after those 90 days, mm-hmm. then what? So after the 90 days, so let me just paint a picture of how I handled those 90 days. I (laughs) needed something to um, show me I was making progress. And so I printed up a calendar, you know, pages of the months, and I put it on my fridge and I marked days. 
because mm-hmm. I needed yeah. to know I got yeah, through like, those days. It's like sobriety counter. Like yeah. I, d- I haven't had a drink in four days. Same, Which, same deal. Yeah. And I kept, I mean, my journals just show everything I was feeling and thinking. And I wrote letters to him, like mm-hmm. little notes to him because I needed to process mm-hmm. feelings. Um, and, you know, in those early days, especially it was still about him. Mm-hmm. So it takes time to realize this is about me. Yeah. And so after the 90 days, um, yeah, and I also, I have to really say that um, of all the relationships, and I've had a lot of relationships in my life, uh, this was a different kind of relationship. You know, this is, How so? um, well, he's probably the most functional person I ever dated, which is why, um, you know, from start to finish, when things blew up and I ended up in therapy, ended up doing the 90 days, it was only three months that we were together. And before I set the 90 days, I communicated with him what I was learning about love addiction and love avoidance and what my part was, what it looked like his part was. Mm. And he was really willing to try all that on. So Um, before you even went into the, mm -hmm. took a break. Yeah. Yeah. And he did get into his own therapy Mm-hmm. because he also noticed some of his behaviors that I didn't even notice. So he was able to, um, on his own, he had enough awareness. Right. And so after the 90 days, uh, I had promised that I would reach out to him. Um, and I think I waited 94 days just because I wasn't quite ready. I was at this point of, I feel so good. I feel so strong. Do I even want to talk to him? You know, but yeah. I said, I told him I would. And so, we had a great conversation and um, we did not get back together right away, but about six months after uh, the 90 days were set, we did reconnect. I think it was about six months. We started dating again and um, we live together now. Yeah. It's been a bunch of years, right? Yeah. We've been together for, I've, I started recovery work, love addiction recovery work. I was looking at it today because I, we were going to talk about it. It'll be six years this summer. Is it like being in a different relationship? Well, since we weren't together very long before mm. I went into recovery, it is very much a different really Right. You weren't married for like 10 years and then, yeah, yeah. Right. But I am very different than I've ever been in any relationship. Um, I in my recovery, and this is, if anyone's in recovery or thinking about recovery, this is normal, is to kind of go from the more, quote unquote, love addict uh, behavior or the side, the extreme, to the more love avoidant side. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that we eventually swing down to the middle, where we're mm-hmm. in the middle. And so I definitely have my more avoidant behaviors that come up now, and but I'm able to communicate them because I feel safe enough in this relationship to do that. Yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah. How is love addiction different than codependency? And and is it different? Do they happen together? Like, what's the difference? Well, I think codependence is um, the term is used more frequently. And I, I often, look, no judgment because I misused it for a long time. <laughs> I think a lot of times we don't really understand what codependence really is. Yeah, so maybe explain it too. mm -hmm, Yeah. And 
to know that they're okay. So here's the thing. <laughs> um, especially you get on Instagram, hashtag codependence, hashtag love addiction, oh hashtag attachment. I mean, there's just so much out there right now, which I'm, I'm looking at as, hey, great. People are talking about it. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is also an opportunity to do your own, uh, let's call it research, you know, your own studying, your own reading. Um, I, for, for my recovery and for the work that I do, I follow Pia Melody's uh, yeah. work on codependence. Mm-hmm. And her, really what codependence is, and I do think we are starting to move away from the term codependence. Um, so with Pia's work, really what that is, is uh, developmental immaturity due to childhood trauma. Right? And when we talk about childhood trauma, we're talking about either enmeshment or neglect in childhood. Enmeshment being when a parent or a caregiver was too enmeshed, too close with mm-hmm. us, too we got too much information about them. We were expected to play roles that weren't right. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is a meshment the, a reference to uh, the effect it had on us or the quality of the relationship? It's the behavior. If we look at all, all of this as behaviors toward a child, right? So neglect. So it's the the enmeshment is the behavior towards the child. Yeah. So, Mm I like this definition that Pia uses, which is um, in a functional family, there is an umbilical cord that goes from the parent to the child, an emotional umbilical cord. Mm -hmm. And so the parent is there to serve the needs of the child. Mm -hmm. With enmeshment, that umbilical cord runs from the child to the parent. So there's, (laughs) right. So the parent and these are just quick summaries, but it's like the parent leans on the child emotionally, um, looks to the child to caretake or to, um, you know, validate them in some way or help them feel better about themselves or, you know, like daddy's little girl, that's Mm -hmm. an enmeshment. Um, The hero of the family, you know, the one, the golden child, the one that's on a pedestal. Mm Yeah, that's also a meshment. Um, but also, you know, mom's best friend, playing mom's best friend. Yeah. Um, you know, the the child who has way too much information about mom and maybe mom and dad. Yep. Yeah. Okay, that's a meshment. And then mm-hmm. the other side neglect. is neglect. And that's, yeah. if there's an umbilical cord, it's just not there? It's just, yeah, the, the child is just... Um, neglected. So if you look at him on two extremes too, right? Everything about Pia's model is really in extremes mm-hmm. as far as dysfunction is concerned. So one extreme is neglect, one extreme is enmeshment. With neglect, and it, it's what it sounds like, right? Uh, the child is neglected. And that can look like it's emotional neglect, which is what we call this silent abuse, because on the outside, it can look like the child has everything that she needs. Mm-hmm. But um, emotionally, you know, is she getting the nurturing? Is she is she getting um, emotionally what she needs? So neglect can be much more challenging to recognize. Yeah. And especially um, as we move into adulthood, we can have these stories of, well, I had everything I needed. Yeah. So there was no right. trauma. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't, I had a, I had a home. <clears throat> I had clothes. Mm-hmm. I had, yeah. And so there's, it's childhood trauma, right? And so 
we look at neglect and enmeshment, and then we looked at we look at the five natural attributes of a child. And so, and any wounding that took place around each attribute, right? So there's five, right? Uh, one is that the first one is a child is valuable just for being here. They don't have to prove themselves, right? This isn't a functional family. Mm-hmm. A child is um, vulnerable. A child is imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um, a child is dependent and open and spontaneous. So those are five things. That's just naturally how a child is, right? But when there's wounding around any of those, right, then that's going to lead us into the core symptoms of codependence. So what is the codependent trying to create? Like, what are they trying to do? What is a codependent trying to do? So so if you look at the wounding, all right, so let's look at the symptoms first, yeah. the symptoms that go with each wounding. So if we're wounded around our value, that's going to lead us to have an issue with our worthiness or our ability to self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go either one up or one down. We're either I'm better. Like if we're, if we're the hero of a family, we kind of are tr- conditioned to believe I'm better mm-hmm. than everyone, you know, or um, become judgmental, critical. Um, or if we're neglected, we're more likely to be one down. Like I'm, I'm not valuable. I need to be play small in order to make everybody happy. That kind of thing, right? Again, you got those two extremes: one up, one down, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're wounded around our vulnerability, we're going to have issues with boundaries. So we might be either walled off, yeah, or passive. So again, those are two extremes. Mm-hmm. There's no functional boundaries in there. And the issue is in the extremes. The issue is that right. we go to the exactly. extremes because we're all right. all of these things, but the issue is that we live in the extreme. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, living in the extremes is where the dysfunction happens, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, if we're wounded around our imperfection, we are, are going to have an issue owning our reality, right? If we're encouraged to be perfect, so in order to fit in and be valuable in the family, we're not going to know what our reality is. Mm-hmm. Um, and reality is a really big issue in, code, uh, in love addiction, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But um, then if we're wounded around our dependence, you know, being dependent, we could be either taught as a child to take care of ourselves, take care of others, mm-hmm. um, or we might be over cared for, meaning everything's taken care of for us. So we yep. don't learn to care for ourselves, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's going to lead to an issue with either being anti-dependent, like I got it, I don't need any help, or I'm helpless, as dependent on some other people to take care of us, right? Yeah. yeah. And then um, the last one is the issue with um, being open and spontaneous. That's our natural attribute. And that is, um, if we're wounded around that, then moderation. So we don't learn containment, mm-hmm. right? So those five core issues, and you look at, there's extremes within each issue or symptom. And so we vacillate. Oftentimes we, we can just live in one extreme, but a lot of times we move back and forth. Yeah. And that's why right. it gets and, so confusing a lot of times yeah. too, because we're like, I'm like this, and then I'm like this. And, and y- mm-hmm. you know, they'll say, like, this was an issue for me. We'll say, you're so... Um, I guess if you just think about it, attachment style, like you're very anxious, but then sometimes mm-hmm. I would be completely walled off and avoidant and like, I don't want to mm-hmm. have, you're dead to me. I don't want to have anything to do with you, which mm-hmm. is really confusing. Cause it's like, wait, no, I don't, I don't need someone, you know, until I do. And then I am like going to die if I don't get their attention. Right. And so that's what I look at 
and so we can come back to the codependence because we're also talking about attachment wrapped up in here too, right? All of this, if we're wounded around these natural attributes, right, yeah. that is also in affecting our attachment and how we're attaching to our caregivers, our parents, primary caregivers, right? Isn't codependency an attachment issue though? Yeah. So if we look at, this is all attachment, developmental attachment trauma. Okay. Right. Yeah. And those five course, you know, natural, it's really what Pia does is she breaks down, okay, here's the deal. Children are these five things, period, right? These five natural attributes. And yet in a dysfunctional family system, the parents try to get them not to be (laughs) these five things in order to meet the needs of the family. And then that leads into the five core symptoms, right? And then that leads into our dysfunctional behavior in adulthood. And so before we talk about attachment, I just want to answer your question. So what is a codependent person trying to get or trying to do, right? Yeah. So if we look at it through the lens of attachment, it's I need to get, um, so I don't have a sense of self. You know, that sense of self was not nurtured. I wasn't launched into the world knowing who I was and believing in myself, mm-hmm. I was conditioned to believe I need external validation. I need to get my worthiness by either making sure you're okay so that then I can feel okay, yeah. right? Or I'll feel okay if I you know, do something for you. So it's all external focus. So that's what we're trying to do in a very simplified answer. Yeah. Yeah. And then how does that differ from a, what a love addict is trying to do? Or, or is it more about just, you know, what's the difference like between the love addiction and codependency? I always look at love addiction as um, it's like codependence on steroids in a way, because mm-hmm. it's like we have with Pia's model, we have the, the natural attributes of the child and we have these core symptoms and then we have secondary symptoms that can develop out of the core symptoms. And that's where we get into the addictions. So with, you know, what Pia says is all love addicts are codependent, not all codependents are love addicts. Yeah. So codependency doesn't always develop into love addiction. So what's been really great is um, Kelly McDaniel's work, her mother hunger work. Because that, to me, fills in the missing piece there. Yeah. And that, and she does, Kelly does define mother hunger as an attachment injury. Mm-hmm. And so in my work, what I like, and even my recovery, I still use Pia's model, but then Kelly's work plugs into it so nicely, so beautifully. And it's hers about, I mean, I remember reading Ready to Heal, which is her mm-hmm. first book, and yeah. being like gutted for a week because it's so big. Mm-hmm. It, it was very true. Um, is the, I haven't read Mother Hunger. Is 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 it really focused on the mother, literal mother? So it sounds like it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Mother Hunger, asking, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and, and I think that's what's so interesting. It sounds like it's so about mom. And I think that part of the reason um, I think Kelly doing this work is so courageous is because on the surface, it can look like we're blaming moms. You know, mom, (laughs) mom is the problem. When really we're talking about our culture 
and how our culture doesn't value moms enough mm-hmm. and support moms enough and doesn't value women the same way that they value men. So it's really about the patriarchy and how that then in- affects women and how we feel about ourselves and then how we raise daughters. And so yeah, it's big picture stuff. It's big picture stuff. It's cultural stuff, but it, it, it mean the individual, the individual. So any individual is impacted by this. It's not, it's not only women or men. I mean, it, it doesn't, there's not ascribed to any specific gender about any specific gender. It's a condition that any human can feel based on a, on their attachment wounding from childhood. The mother hunger work? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're... Yeah. Yeah. And Kelly writes it specifically for daughters. And I think the reason I would have to ask her this, but in the story in my head about that is because even though, yes, I imagine there is mother hunger possibly that men as boys experience too, that it is not only does a daughter experiencing the mother hunger, um, but then we're also confronted with what's happening in the culture around us, how we're being right. societally conditioned as yeah. women. So it's yep. like double whammy. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True and co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here, put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. We think the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad-free so all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMSD Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. And whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMSD Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the pod's production and distribution costs. When you're a member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the AMAs, and you get access to the complete unedited interviews. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift or for as little as five or 10 bucks a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, And we hope you check out the playlist we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free. And look, we're just thrilled that you're here. If you can become a member, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. It takes less than two minutes. Thanks a lot. I actually really like the codependency on steroids <laughs> phrase because it makes sense. I mean, it's simplified, but, mm-hmm. but I think it's actually true. I have an idea, a, a hypothesis, but why would you call it an addiction? Yeah. And let me go back to something you said a little while ago, which is how the alcohol yeah. came first, but you also said, I didn't start drinking when I was three. So something yeah. must have happened in there, right? Okay, so it's the attachment, attachment, right? Yeah. So we're looking at Pia's work. We're looking at Kelly McDaniel's work. And so let's look specifically at mother hunger and how this develops into um, addiction, what we're calling addiction, is that at an early age, we learn 
if we are in distress to auto-regulate, we auto-regulate. That's some thumb sucking, that's chewing on our hair, we have a blankie, we have a stuffed toy, whatever it is we're doing to auto-regulate because for whatever reason, mom isn't available, mm-hmm. to, right? And and even, it's not about, let's not go into, this is a quote unquote bad mom, this is mom who has to work or mom who has other children. Can't be at your side 24 seven, right? That's right, so we learn to auto-regulate. The, the idea behind this though, is that we do this in a pinch, not, we don't, shouldn't have to, quote unquote, shouldn't have to do this consistently. Yeah. But let's say when we're talking about mother hunger, we do for whatever reason we have. It becomes the rule, not the exception. Yeah. Right. And so then that develops and like with my story, it developed into fantasy when I was seven-ish. I mean, I was hardcore into my fantasy world and it was a very important part of my life. And so- you know, in my fantasies, I was, I had really, I was living in LA. I was a grown up and I was married to Eric Estrada from <laughs> Chips. And, you know, I mean, I just had this great life. And what I've realized recently is that, I mean, I felt so good in these fantasies. I had everything I could possibly want. And, but Eric Estrada was actually barely in the fantasy. He was yeah. peripheral. It was right. really about how I felt. I felt so good, you know, yeah, yeah. but he was a part of it. He, he needed to be part of it in order for me to feel good about mm-hmm. myself, see? And so then that fantasy developed into, um, at one point I was, I uh, pulled my hair out. There was, I had a lot of anxiety. I bit my nails. That's also auto-regulating. Mm-hmm. Um, well then, you know, 13, 14 boys come along, you know, 14, 15 alcohol comes along. And so I'm auto-regulating with Alcohol, boys and alcohol. Boys, yeah. Yeah. And so that is where, if we we look at the term addiction, and I I can't remember who said this. um, I need to look up who said this. But it was basically, we need to stop calling it addiction because it really is just, we're just trying to get our needs met and we're auto-regulating. Yeah, it, it was someone who, and it, it wasn't Gabor Matei, it was someone who, and I actually did an Instagram post and I still can't remember who it was. It was in a, a lecture that I watched, but um, but it was something about, let's let's just say, it, it's not, let's stop calling it addiction. Let's We're auto-regulating and we're learning, our brain has learned from very early on, we have to auto-regulate like that in order to feel safe. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone, Jolene Park uh, recently said, if we don't learn to self-soothe, we will self-medicate. Mm-hmm. Same deal. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there are lots right now, lots of talk about auto-regulation and self-soothing and, you know, basically it starts very, very early, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's where when we're talking about attachment, you know, we're looking at either secure attachment or insecure attachment. Mm-hmm. And then under the umbrella of insecure attachment, we're looking at anxious or avoidant or uh, disorganized. Right. And so you just said earlier that you sometimes would go into uh, much more of an avoidant place and then sometimes there would be anxious. And so what I've learned through working with, with love addiction and my own and with others is that we can move around. You know, we can be more love avoidant. We can be more love addict. And it just depends on what gets kicked up in that relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that they're the extremes. and Still extremes. They're the extremes of 
of behavior uh, and and the, the the sane place is not to exit the spectrum. It's or the the place of balance and peace and and what we what we seek in recovery is a is a middle place. Mm-hmm. In addition to yeah. other things, a healthy sense of self and all that. But that yes. is part of the middle. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so the addiction. So I, I was thinking the one of the reasons it would be called an addiction is because it you're powerless in moments to right. override it, control it. I mean, I couldn't. Yeah. When, yeah. when I was in a, when I was in a spiral, it felt as desperate and out of control as drinking felt to me. Yes. Yeah. It, it does. If you can use the same um, symptoms of addiction to some, you know, symptoms of love addiction, they, it, they look the same. Even um, physically. Oh, yeah. Withdrawal sick, is real. Withdrawal. withdrawal. N- nauseous, mm-hmm. sick. Um, I would have mania, depression, mm-hmm. uh, anxiety. Like, holy, yeah. holy shit, anxiety. I mean, I would be it, – it, it mimics, like, physically, emotionally, spiritually all the same symptoms. Yes, it does. And so that also can go with, you know, why we do call it an, addic- an addiction. But, you know, I really – um, love addiction is such an inaccurate term, though, for what it is that we're talking about, because it really, even though, yes, so the addiction part does make sense as far as, you know, how we got there and also the symptoms of an addiction. Um, but it really has very little to do with love, you know? Right, right. Um, especially, especially, I've always hated it. You know how I feel about it. When yeah. first, the first time I heard it, I was like, please. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We need love, yeah. you know. Right. Yeah. So you've it, started calling it or do call it what? I still call it love addiction um, so because that's what it's what worked for me. Yeah. And now I have considered trying to recreate, you know, come up with a new term. But the thing is, if I use love addiction, then people can Google that term. They can find Pia's work. I just always like to say, I don't like that term. I don't think it's an accurate term to describe what we're talking about. This is a, something that I misunderstood, and I think a lot of people misunderstand. So what does an attachment disorder or love addiction look like and feel like versus just being excited about someone, like that falling in love, passion, these common ideas that we have about quote-unquote love because mm-hmm. of culture and movies and right whatever else. Yeah. Well, one thing I do like, I've learned this, uh, is I like to refer to it as um, functional relationships and functional love. Yes. Because, yeah, because we're all about function in recovery, fun- being functional, being your functional adult self, right? So what, what I work with clients on is, okay, are you operating from your functional adult self. Okay. And so what that means is, are you in touch with the fact that you've got value right Mm -hmm. now, that you're valuable, that you're equally valuable? You're not going one up, one down. Is that okay? Cool. And are you able to communicate your reality, who you are? And, you know, you've got boundaries, functional boundaries. Oh, it's such a big Um, one. Yeah. Because when you are in it, you know that you're not in it when you're trying to manipulate their behavior. So you're acting a certain way, saying a certain thing, not saying a certain thing, not doing a certain thing. Mm -hmm. Everything you're doing is around manipulation of their behavior so that you 
get what you think you need. Which, yeah. And what we think we need is to stay in the relationship, to stay because that's what we're trying to stay at. If we're trying to stay in the relationship, oh, if we are tamping down our authenticity, our authentic self, mm-hmm. in order to stay connected and stay attached, that's dysfunctional, right? Yes. If we cannot be our who we are for fear of losing that relationship, then we're not operating in, uh, as a functional adult. And so, but it doesn't mean you're not going to feel scared because gosh, we're dealing with this stuff our whole lives. And so this is going to be scary. I'm going to communicate my truth. And even though I'm scared to death, this person's going to reject me. And that's going to mean disconnection. Right. But the right person is not going to disconnect. That's the key. Yes. Is that you, you're, you're in both situations, you can be afraid and you will be. Mm-hmm. But one is you're afraid, but you're still yourself. Right. And you accept the consequences. Well, right. I mean, and when I say the right person won't disconnect, I'm talking about a functional person. Yeah. That wants to be with you. Yeah. Because I think I want to stay away from right person. Who's the right person? Who's the, you know, because a functional person is going to hang in there with you. It doesn't mean they're going to be thrilled about what you say, you know, and there might be conflict even. But to be able to, to know that you can tolerate, I will tolerate this. It will be uncomfortable, but I will tolerate this. And then every time you do it, you just get stronger and stronger. Yeah. So, so you can show up as you are. And then the other thing is, and this is the value part, feeling like I actually don't want to be with someone who doesn't know the real me. Right. Like instead of I need to do this at all costs, I need to be whatever mm-hmm. this relationship needs to be so that I can stay in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, t- that was the big tip off for me, like not operating based on their feelings, their wants, their needs, right. and actually being able to identify my own. Right. Yeah. And that really takes, you know, working on, um, first of all, what would get, what historically has gotten in the way of being yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. But then also getting to know yourself, right. Developing a relationship Bingo. with yourself. Yeah. Is all part of this work. So that then you get to know yourself and value yourself so that you don't uh, do anything to, um, you know, there's a word I want. Abandon. Um, abandon yourself or compromise yourself uh, anymore. Do you feel like, I know you said to me that you feel like this is like this undiagnosed epidemic. <laughs> yeah. You know, do you feel, I feel like a a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. people in recovery, when mm-hmm. they go to get sober, maybe they don't have love addiction, but they don't know themselves very well. I didn't. And so their relationships are based on a f- false self. Yeah. I think that a lot of us are walking around not knowing ourselves and undervaluing ourselves and you know, living externally. And so when we're living externally, trying to get our needs met out here, all of this right here is starving. Mm-hmm. So of course we're not going to feel great. And of course we're going to want to self-medicate with something. I'm just imagining people listening and going, oh my God, I want to like curl under a ball and just die now. But let's talk about recovery and the hope. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you've had, a, would you say you're recovered in recovery? I well, I will never say I'm recovered because I believe that recovery 
is also dynamic. I think that it's always, I'm as much every day there's something new in recovery that I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm learning that. I'm learning that. And, um, I also know enough from my history with love addiction to never say that I will never be in a dysfunctional relationship again. It's going to be how I handle that will be very different ideally. Uh, But that, yeah, I don't say. But your experience of the day-to-day of being in a relationship is, is different. It's very different. Yes. Very different. Yeah. And the relationship that I'm in, allows me to really look at my own shit a lot more than I could with in my pre-recovery, um, especially obviously. But now I get to go, oh, wow, I didn't want to talk about that thing because I'm still, I was scared he was going to respond a certain way. And then mm-hmm. that would mean that. And then it, it's just like, you can walk through it, <laughs> the whole thing and go, oh, but it's still- But you're in a safe container. You know, it's not like there's no sure things and there's no, you know, forevers and there's no all of that mm-hmm. because things are always always changing like you said but you're uh what are the what would you say are the sort of primary differences now versus then uh knowing myself valuing myself um knowing the model i mean pmld's model and these symptoms so now part of that is being able to say oh okay, woof, my moderation is way off right now. So what's going on? And it always goes back to boundaries. Oh, look at that. I said yes to that thing and that threw my whole schedule off and now I'm burnt out and, you know, and so I'm yeah. able to walk through all of it all the time. So it, that's all part of knowing myself. But I think understanding the model is a huge part of it. And also just, I wake up every day and I, I, I just feel it's, it's not that I have to wake up every day and feel awesome because it's not, you know, realistic, but I still wake up six years later and think, you know, sometimes I wake up and I think, gosh, remember those days when I would wake up and my first thought was, oh my God, he didn't text me back last night. Oh my God. I never heard oh. from him yesterday. Yeah. Oh my God. I have to, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And the anxiety just from the moment, you know, and it just, it's not there anymore. So. Yeah, it's like living with like drinking. I still have, and I and have the same feelings about the the relationship stuff too. Where it's you're just more at peace. You're not in a mm-hmm. constant hyper vigilant mode of. Uh, it feels like just being underwater a lot and like mm-hmm. trying continuing to have to swim to keep keep your breath. You know, and always yeah. being at risk of like being dunked. By mm-hmm. any because it has it because it you're at the whim of someone else all the time, and your yes. own mind that is, in your own mind mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, so yeah. what would you say is the first like maybe first two thing couple things that someone could do if they're hearing this and they're going, well, fuck, I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I recommend Pia's book, Pia Melody's book, Facing Love Addiction. I cannot talk enough about that because I've read it several times. Mm-hmm. I still use it on my Instagram because I'm always finding little nuggets in there. I know there are lots of great therapists out there, but if you can find a therapist who understands love addiction and, you know, or slaw also, mm-hmm. um, which is, and there are even love addicts, LAA, Love Addicts Anonymous is on um, online. 
Mm-hmm. So just there's, you know, there's free support groups. And then also a therapist who understands this can make a huge difference in recovering. Are you still working with people in this capacity? I'm, I'm not accepting individual clients anymore, but I am doing, um, well, I have my online understanding love addiction course, which will run again this fall. Mm-hmm. And I'm right now running a mother hunger online group, which I will run again uh, at some point this year. And I do weekend intensives uh, here in Austin. They're three day intensives that are based on the training that I received at the Meadows. So I call them family of origin intensives, but really we're, so we're diving into family of origin work and, um, addressing those core symptoms of developmental immaturity, which is what uh, is also known as codependence, so that we can become our functional adult selves. And you've seen lots and lots of people recover and have go on to have great relationships or be happy by themselves or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen a lot of, I mean, working with Pia's model um, and now Kelly McDaniel's work too, I see really amazing um, recovery work. And also though, a a big part of this recovery is you're going, we are going to feel anxious again. We are going to feel avoidant again. And it's all in how we handle that. Right. Yes. And so that's the thing about the recovery from this is it's, it, there is no perfect. And, um, you know, we're gonna, it's all in how in the, once we get this information, like in my intensives, my weekend intensives, I do a lot of education Mm -hmm. as well as experiential work, Mm -hmm. but because of my own recovery, knowing and understanding this model made such a huge difference. So I educate on this model, this PS model so that you understand what we're dealing with and you have this structure to take it, leave here with, right? So Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted to have this kind of conversation, which is really just informational, like a little bit of storytelling, but mostly informational because for me too, knowing that this is the thing, this Mm -hmm. is why, this this is what it looks like, this is how it presents, this is how it feels, was changed everything for me. Mm -hmm. And you know, personally, I can say it, there is a different way of being. It takes, it, when you said I or do week at family of origin intensives, even though I've done so much of that work, I still went, oh, inside. <laughs> yeah. Still this like recoil, mm-hmm. reflex inside, because it's just, it's, it's as deep as you go, right? This yeah. is as deep as you go. You know, I yeah. I would have no, I didn't do any of this work until I was five, four or five years sober. I wouldn't have been able to. Mm-hmm. So just to yeah. people that might be early in recovery and thinking, I got to fix this. It's like, there's time. Right. And that is something that Pia talks about, too, is before we do any love addiction work, we need to address um, any other addiction, is what she says, that is going on. So if there is alcohol um, but let's deal with, we need to get uh, stability, sobriety there first before we dig into this because yes. we, two reasons. First of all, we want you to um, be able to feel uh, more confident, stable in this work as we do it because it is trauma work. But then also, and uh, my colleague up in Dallas um, uh, told me this and I really I thought this was um, important is that we also want a client to, or yeah, a client or a group member to experience 
the anxiety that comes up, the feelings, the discomfort that comes up when we're doing this trauma work and deal with it versus use something to medicate it because that's how that started in the first place. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, you have to metabolize it. Yes, right. We want you to sit, be able to sit with it and so that we can then work work through it versus if you're, because if we're still medicating it, then we're not, we go back to that old place of I'll deal with that later. <laughs> I'll deal with the, you know, I'll deal with that childhood trauma stuff later. <laughs> so you start addressing these things. It, it's just your life opens up. Things open up. Yeah. Don't so. you think, and we'll end on this, don't you think it also plays into all relationships too? Oh, yes. Thank you for pointing that out and, and saying that because I did want to I did want to mention that, that we're not just talking about it. This stuff will come up in uh, friendships, mm-hmm. in, um, I mean, I did it with bosses, you know, like put bosses on a pedestal. If I can just get them to love me, if I can do all these things, you know, overvaluing them because I needed to feel safe or okay at work um, before I got into it became a therapist. But yes, this can this can show up in not just romantic relationships. I'm so glad we said that right at the end because it's, yeah. so, it's so important. <laughs> yeah. Friendships, family relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and giving us so much in one <laughs> session. You're probably going to need a nap now. That's it's okay. a juicy topic. I mean, seriously, because I think so many people can relate to it. Mm-hmm. And because it's really you know, if you look at this through a trauma lens or a trauma-informed lens either, which really says we've all experienced some sort of trauma in childhood, yeah, basically. And so whether or not people want to look at it or not, most people can probably relate to this model, you know, um, of PIAs on some level. So, Well, it's also there's nothing more important and that impacts your life more than how you relate to yourself Mm -hmm. and to other people. I don't know who it was that said this to me, but maybe it was you. But like, if you want to look, if you want to know a person's health, look at their relationships. Mm-hmm. And like, if you want, really want to know how, yeah. fu- let's say functional yeah. they are and how much they're operating from their adult, functional adult selves, look at their relationships. Mm-hmm. And is that ever true? Self yeah. included. Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at all this other outside stuff and all the talk and all the things, but if you like, how are their relationships? Yeah. I didn't say that. I wish I had. That's really great. You want to know how functional someone is? <laughs> look at their relationships. Yeah. Well, you yeah. can say it now. I don't know where I got it. <laughs> it's true. And you that's where I think you can really see progress over time too. Yeah, totally. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. 
cannot stress this enough, you can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Thank you.